You're listening to the Nate Lull Podcast. Download each new episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And now, here's Nate. Today is episode 79 right here on the Nate Lull Podcast. Welcome back, all my podcast friends. I am your host, Nate Lull. Today, I am joined by longtime Gilbertsville and also GMU coach, athletic director, you name it, he did it at those schools, Dean Veenhoff. Uh, I'm excited because I had Coach Veenhoff uh, when I was in school. He did retire when I was in seventh grade but I had him as my PE teacher, and I was also lucky enough to be his water boy for one of the last years that he was coaching varsity boys basketball at GMU. So I feel like this has come full circle for me today, from uh, being on the bench as his water boy to getting to sit down and interview him. That was a a really cool experience. So I kind of credit Coach with uh, letting me in the door and getting me interested in being around sports for the rest of my life because... I got to do the water boy thing long before I was ever playing, you know, in high school or anything. And I knew that after high school, I would want to continue in some way, shape or form in having a career based around sports. And here I am today at WCDO announcing local games. So I have to give him a lot of credit for that. I think you're going to love this interview here today. And I think part of it is that maybe you don't know uh, Coach Veenhoff's backstory of where he came from. Uh, It's an incredible story, and uh, I'm going to let him tell it today, but he is a guy from Minnesota, and basically, if you know the movie Hoosiers, a very famous basketball movie, you might have an idea of where I'm going with this, but uh, just an incredible story. So please sit back, kick back, relax. You're going to enjoy that. If you already knew this about Coach Veenhoff, I think he gives a lot of details, so you might learn something here today. There is a book about this story, a couple of documentaries. Uh, So there's a lot of information out there about this, that's for sure. Uh, But I think you'll learn a little bit more here today. And if it's the first time you're hearing about this and you only knew Coach Veenhoff as a local Tri-Valley and Section 4 coach, I think that uh, you'll really learn a lot here today. And going along with this high school basketball story is that it's been a long time since Coach Veenhoff was in high school, but the story lives on and the legend of the story lives on today. And uh, it has just really kind of made Coach uh, a little bit famous in in some circles. And uh, he even said to me when he was in for the interview, he goes, I tried to tell you that I was famous, but nobody believed me. So... <laughs> So because when I was in high school, Coach, I, I never heard this story. He did not talk about it to us. And in my time as a water boy, I don't remember him telling the team or anything like that. So, you know, uh, being a humble guy, I think he kind of kept it under his hat. But every once in a while, I think someone does some digging, finds this info, and then he's pretty glad to talk about it. One other thing I thought was neat about Coach is that when he was done Uh, coaching in the Tri-Valley at GMU. He went on to become a motor coach driver, and he just loves sports so much that he, uh, you know, would drive different teams, Oneonta State, Hartwick, and and of course the Oneonta Tigers, the minor league team when they were in town, the Oneonta Outlaws. So he always loved being around sports, and he tells a couple of those stories in the podcast today. He told me one after we were done that I thought, boy, I have to tell this. And it's just that no matter where you go, Coach Veenhoff seems to have that weird connection with everybody. He tells a story in the interview today about how someone knew him in Florida. Well, speaking of a similar story, uh, some of his family members were in an airport. And his family was flying back home, and uh, they were looking across the aisle at this airport. And uh, there was a young man talking to an older woman. And uh, the older woman was asking the young man what he did for a living. And he said, well, I play professional baseball. And she said, oh, really? For who? And uh, he said, the Detroit Tigers. And so Dean's family at this point thought, yeah, well, I don't know who this guy is, but maybe uh, maybe he knows uh, something about the Oneonta Tigers. Maybe he played there. So Dean's family asked him, and uh, he said, yeah, I-, I played in Oneonta. And they said, do you know, uh, do you know Dean Veenhoff? And he said, oh, yeah, Dino, love that guy turned out to be Rick Porcello, who was playing for the Detroit Tigers at the time. He since went on and has played for the Red Sox, now currently with the Mets. I mean, he's won a World Series, an AL Cy Young back in 2016, uh, Major League Baseball wins leader in 2016, kind of a big name. And here he is. He knows Coach Veenhoff. So I thought that was great. Of course, we'll get into all of Coach Veenhoff's coaching stories today, how he ended up in Gilbertsville, 
and a lot of great coaching stories. Uh, Coach is the type of guy that he'll tell you anything, and he certainly does that here today. So please enjoy this one. I know you will. want to thank all our special sponsors here on the Nate Law Podcast. The list is always growing, and we thank you for your support, especially during these times of no local sports. The podcast has really kept us going, and I certainly appreciate that. A couple new sponsors we have are the Sydney and Norwich McDonald's Restaurants, Superior Heating and Air Duct Cleaning of Sydney, DTC, Delhi Telephone Company. Those are three of our new sponsors. And of course, our tried and true sponsors that have been here for quite a while now. Conan Fraser Builders of Franklin and Unadilla, Echo Brands of Sydney, McCready Motors in Norwich, the Rinker Insurance Agency of Afton, Barnard's Hometown Hardware of Bainbridge, Waste Recovery Enterprises of Sydney, Chambers Nohara Car and Truck Center, Trossett Group Attorneys of Cooperstown, Patriot Masonry of Otigo, New York Pizzeria of New Berlin, the Delaware National Bank of Delhi, Clark Sports Center of Cooperstown, Gilbert Plumbing and Heating of Gilbertsville, Certified Auto Outlet of Oneonta, First Priority Mortgage Loan Officer David Smith, Marabito Gresham Insurance, Huff Ice Cream of Sydney, Benson Agency Real Estate of Oneonta, the Franklin Railroad Museum, C.H. Landers Funeral Chapel of Sydney, the Leatherstocking Group of Cooperstown, we have SFCU, Sportsfield Specialties of Delhi, the Amphenol Corporation of Sydney, Preferred Mutual Insurance Company of New Berlin, Shindello Federal Credit Union of Franklin, Shenango Memorial Hospital of Norwich, and NYCM Insurance of Edmiston. So here is episode 79 with Dean Wienhoff, a great high school story and a longtime coach here in the area uh, with Gilbertsville and GMU. So please enjoy, folks, right here on the Nate Lull Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Today is episode 79 right here on the Nate Law Podcast as we approach uh, number 80. Can't believe that's coming up so fast. Very excited for it today as uh, I am a GMU alum and I'm joined by a longtime uh, GMU coach, Gilbertsville coach, uh, and the guy who gave me my first job in sports as a water boy, <laughs> Coach Dean Wienhoff. Coach, I'm so excited to have you in here today. Thanks for joining me. Well, it's good to be here, Nate. Yeah, Coach, fifth or sixth grade, I think. I, I was on the bench. You were luck- You were nice enough, I should say, to, uh, to let me sit there. I, I think it was your last year coaching, so it was always kind of my honor to to be there and, and to watch you and, and your style, and I, I really enjoyed that. Do you have a a Nate Lull water boy memory of any kind that, that the listeners might like? <laughs> no, but I'm glad you were there. <laughs> you probably saw, saw some of the things that uh, maybe you shouldn't have seen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I enjoyed it. And then, like I said, it really uh, kind of opened my eyes to the world of sports. And I knew from then on that it was something that, that I would want to do. So where I wanted to start today is, you know, I, I had you in school. You retired when I was in seventh grade, but you were teaching P.E., and I always knew you as this legendary local figure. And it doesn't matter wherever I go today in my job, if someone says, hey, where'd you go to high school? And I say, oh, I'm from Gilbertsville. I went to GMU. Your name is the name that comes up. So everyone knows you. So I said, I got to get him in here. But there's a, a big piece that I didn't know about your life until a couple of years ago. Um, and I always like to ask coaches where they're from. And a lot of guys are just local. Maybe I grew up in Morris and I ended up over here or wherever. But you were originally from Minnesota, and your high school career, high school basketball career, is straight out of a movie, and, and there's actually a book about it. So, you know, I, I was hoping you could take us back and we could dive into your days at Edgerton, Minnesota. Well, it's uh, been a long time ago. I was born and raised on a farm in southern, southwestern Minnesota, and basically all there was to do was sports. So I played football, I played basketball, and I played baseball. And in the summertime, we always had the American Legion, and it was just a good time of a good time of year growing up. And it was a small town, so. But eventually, once high school started, we had a pretty good basketball team. In my junior year, we uh, went 27 and 0, won a state championship, and that was back when Minnesota only had one one class. It was just a class one class tournament. 
I mean, it's pretty amazing to think about your high school. I, I believe I heard had 94 total students, so most classes would have what, right around 30 or so? Yeah. Yeah, I think we had 28 in my graduating class. So, I mean, you're really talking about a true, if we're looking at it in New York terms, a, a Class D Morris Gilbertsville size school. And with no other classes, you were playing the biggest schools in the state. That's right. Yeah, we played in our semifinals. We played a team from the Minneapolis area. And so the starting five of that team all went to the University of Minnesota on full scholarships with some athletic event. Absolutely amazing to think about. And I was just watching a couple of videos as I prepared for this, and you played your state semifinal game in front of 19,000 fans. That's correct. I mean, what was that experience like? So for all our local listeners, imagine playing in your normal high school gym here, or I should say the smaller gyms of a, of a time gone by, and now you're playing in front of 19,000 fans. I mean, what was that like for you? I don't, I don't think it clicked at the time. I mean, we were just there to play basketball. We didn't, we didn't realize the impact that it was going to have on, on everything, you know. At that point, it was 19,000 people, big deal, you know. We didn't worry about it. So you weren't, you weren't nervous going into that game at always, all? No, always nervous. You're nervous <laughs> before every game. And that didn't change when I was coaching. I was always nervous before every game. The book which you brought in today, if anyone wants to look it up, is called Edgerton, A Basketball Legend. Uh, so this was the 1960 Minnesota State Basketball Championships. And, and again, this video I was watching was saying, I think even to today, it's the second largest crowd they've had for uh, the state basketball tournament in Minnesota. I think 1962, they said they had just a little bit more, but absolutely unbelievable. When did you know that season that maybe something special was going on? We didn't really. The players didn't really know. I mean, by Christmas time, evidently our coach, who was a first-year coach, by the way, he probably suspected by Christmas time that there was something special going on, but nobody envisioned a district, region, and state championship. It was beyond our belief. Now, your coach in the video, he looks pretty young. He was just 23-year-old, right out of college, first year coaching. So was he someone you knew? Was he a local guy, or did he come there to become a teacher? No, I, we're f our, our school, I'm, Edgerton is from the southwestern corner of Minnesota. He was from Virginia, Minnesota, which is way up north on the Iron Range. So it was totally different for him, too. And at 23 years old, I'm, I'm envisioning maybe he was jumping in practice with you guys still. Uh, was he that kind of a hands-on type of coach? Uh, he moved into our, into our town right after the school was out in, in uh, or the spring of 59, I guess. And uh, we used to play three-on-three three every night in the summertime. We had a basket on uh, attached to a garage and in town so I would come to town and we'd always have three on three and our coach was one of the six that was playing with us so we played with him all summer long. Was he a pretty good ball player? He was a good ball player, <laughs> a good shooter yeah. <laughs> After this was all done and and you had some time to to maybe go back and talk to him did he ever say what the experience was like for him? I mean first year coach you kind of get thrown into this or was he like you guys? Hey, we're just out here to have fun, and we're competitive, and we want to win. Well, I think that's it. I think he was just, you know, I I don't know if he realized what was going on at the time. We certainly didn't. But it was just a matter of after a few years, you realize that, hey, people still know it. I mean, <laughs> 50 years later, you, you talk to some of the old-timers from Minnesota, and they can still name the starting five of that basketball team. So It's an incredible story. And, and again, you're playing, I, I would equate it to if uh, Morris or GMU or a Franklin, somebody like that was playing maybe like an Elmira or, exactly. or somebody like that exactly. in the state finals. I mean, it's just something I don't even think our local fans can comprehend. Or somebody, somebody like uh, Shenandoah, which is one of the bigger high schools in the state. So, yeah. So you were a junior in 1960, and some reading I had done said that the team uh, the year before had gotten pretty far and had a, a devastating loss, I believe, in maybe your district championship. Yeah. Were you yep. on that team as well? Yep. Yeah, I, I, was, I started as a freshman, so I played all four years on the, on the varsity. Was that pretty rare in those days to come up early? Was it a pretty strict... JV varsity type of system, or just since it was such a small school, you came up when you came up. Well, I I don't think it was it was it was unusual. But my cousin, who was a second leading scorer on our team, 
he also came up as a freshman. So we had two freshmen on the on the starting five. I know that loss, uh, in the video I was watching, several of your teammates said that, that that loss the year before was devastating and really drove you guys to work hard into that summer and into the next year. Uh, is that how you remember it as well? Yeah, that's pretty much capsulized it all. Yeah. I think he said he cried for three days afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> this was his words. So, Coach, how, how tall are you? I'm about 6'5". What was the size like on that team? I, I was looking at your team photo, which I will post when I put up this interview. It looked like you guys had some nice size. We had six. I was six five. We had a, a six four forward. We had two five five eight guards that were the key to the whole thing. The guys standing next to you in the picture looked just as tall as you. So yeah, I was like, wow, maybe this team had some had no, some that's real our height. Two, that's our two four. But at six five back then, I was a big man. You know, I was one of the taller players. In high school. The team that you played in the semifinals, Richfield, which was the number one team in the state at the time, what were they built like? What what were their strengths at the time? They were just all good athletes. Like I said, all five of them went to University of Minnesota on full rides. So talk about after you win the state championship, uh, you come home to a pretty big parade and a pretty big celebration, uh, and it looked like not just your town. It looked like every little town around you was celebrating this win. What are your memories from that? Yeah, it was a, it was a fun time. The the fire trucks met us about a mile outside of town, and we all jumped on the fire truck and entered into the village. There's like ten thousand people in town. I mean, for a town of nine hundred and eighty eighty one to have ten thousand people on Main Street was really something special. Yeah, it was kind of cool. One thing that I found interesting uh, in the documentary I watched, it said that I think the championship game was a Saturday. Yes. But, and you guys stayed in the city on Sunday uh, because your hometown community was a pretty religious community. Very much so. Uh, so you didn't want to disturb anything on Sunday, so you actually came back on Monday. That's correct. So what did you get to do in the big city on that Sunday, on the day off? It, it looked like you guys went out to dinner and did some various other things to kind of relax and celebrate. Yeah, we did. We just kind of cooled our jets. We went to church in the morning, went out to dinner, went to a hospital and visited a couple of... Uh, I guess they were they were in iron lungs, so I guess they were maybe polio people or other severe things, kind of break up the day. Now, I also saw that uh, they claimed that your town that you grew up in, well, your, your mascot was the Flying Dutchman. Correct. And that your town was about 95% Dutch. Is, yes. that, is that also correct? Yes, it is, and it's still that way. Why, why that population like that? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it just struck me as, wow, that's interesting. So, so you grew up on the farm. Uh, just tell us a little bit about your upbringing, uh, what life was like growing up in, in rural Minnesota, and, and kind of what your passions were, or was it really sports was life? It hasn't changed much from back then until now. I mean, if you're a farm kid, you got chores to do. you got things that have to be done. And, you know, my dad was a real supporter of us, but there was always chores to do after I got home after practice at night. And he didn't take any any exceptions. There was always cows to milk in the morning. And five thirty, he was getting me up before school to go milk. So yeah, I don't think it's any. I don't think that's changed much, or from then until now. Coach, I I honestly don't know this. Uh, how many brothers or sisters did you have growing up? I got one brother and one sister. So you guys were all busy on the farm. Yeah. Yep. What is the Minnesota winter like where you grew up? I'm always curious about that. Very much the same as it is here with cold and snow, but in southwestern Minnesota, in the wintertime, the wind always blows. Here, when it snows, it comes down straight. When it snows in Minnesota, it comes down sideways. How often do you get a chance to, to go back and, and get to your hometown? Well, we try to make it back every summer, but, you know, of course, with this COVID business, we didn't make it back this year. Now, are a lot of your teammates uh, still in the area? Did they did they stay more local in Minnesota? Uh, no, they're uh, they're in Minnesota, but not not any place near Edgerton. Yeah, they're more in the metropolitan areas. I wanted to go back and talk about your coach. Uh, as you moved on in life, and we'll get there in your story, but and you became a coach, how much did you stay in touch with him? And I also think a lot of the guys on your team became teachers and coaches. So how often would you maybe give them a call and bounce ideas off one another and, and just kind of talk basketball? No, very seldom, very seldom. We would always... Try to get together when we went back home every summer, you know, the the four or five of us closer friends, we would always get together, play a little golf, and then the women would come and 
all our wives would go out to dinner. It was it was just kind of a nice reunion. Is it strange to you, and maybe you can tell us both sides of this, when you take us back to the, the 60s, as you said, people knew this team and knew their story, and now you go back 50 or 60 years later, and they still know the story. Is yeah. it is it strange to kind of be a celebrity almost in, in that regard, and, and how did you deal with that? <laughs> well, it was... It's kind of fun to go back and look at it now. You know, we uh, have a daughter who lives in Florida, and we were, uh, I guess this was two years ago, I was in a supermarket, in a, in a fresh food market in Naples, Florida, and I saw a guy with a big block M on his hat. So I went over and I said, hey, what part of Minnesota are you from? <laughs> well, he says, we're from Winona. Oh, I said, Winona, that's way across the state from where I was born and raised. Yeah, he says, where were you born and raised? Oh, I said, a little town called Edgerton. Edgerton? Oh, the basketball championship, and he named the starting five. <laughs> I said, yeah, well, I'm one of them. No, you're not. He didn't believe me, so I had to take out my license, my driver's license, and show him who I was. <laughs> but this is, you know, this is 60 years later. That is crazy to, <laughs> to think about, uh, that, that you're known like that. I think it's such a cool thing. Now, I know the movie Hoosiers was based on a different team. Yeah. Uh, that w- had a similar story, but I mean, when you watch that movie, there has to be a lot of parallels between your story and that story. Very much so, very much so. We would have been, if it hadn't have been an Indiana Hoosiers, it would have been Minnesota Hoosiers. Yeah, yeah, such a such a great story. And when you look back on it now, and and you've had all these years to think about it, does it even seem like it happened? Does it seem real? Yeah, it seems real <laughs> after all the reminders that you get every year or every, you know, in the past, everybody was remembering and, yeah, you know, it, it seems real. And I think it hits more home now than it did back when we were younger. Now, recently, I believe maybe two years ago or so, uh, your entire team was inducted into some sort of like a Minnesota High School Basketball Hall of Fame. How was that experience? That's great. It was wonderful. All of our teammates were there. And... Our coach's widow, our coach's wife was uh, was with us, so yeah, it was cool. Do you have a moment from that season, and that's got to be hard to to pick one, uh, a game, a moment where it really sticks out to you when you you think about that? Maybe you go back to that specific memory more than others. Yeah, it was the semifinals of the district. We were playing Pipestone, which is a town about fifteen miles away from Edgerton, and they had a great basketball team. And we started off. We were we got down nine nothing to start off in the first quarter and uh it was a little bit scary but we came back and did it mean a lot to your team i know that your school had had a rich basketball tradition but it sounded like almost like sectionals here they just hadn't quite gotten over that hump yet that's it that's right did that really mean a lot to your team when you got that district championship well yeah that's what that was what our goal was is district we had no idea of the region, which here out here is the sectionals, and then the state, we had no idea of uh, understanding that. It's uh, it's a great story to look back on. I still can't imagine the feeling you guys had when you walked into the arena where you played. Uh, I know you had a shoot-around in the morning, and then you came back, and, and the place was absolutely packed. In fact, I even think it holds less people now than it, it do- did then. It does, yeah. I, I just can't even imagine being a Class D high school kid walking out onto that floor. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, even now when you think about Joe Girard playing in Broome County Arena and it was packed, I mean, there was probably, what, four or 5,000 people yeah, there? 5,200, yeah. I mean, 19,000 is, yeah. yeah. is, is just unbelievable. So, well, Coach, after Edgerton, I don't know your college story or your post-high school story. Uh, can you take us through where you went after high school and what your interests were? Well, after I graduated from high school, I uh, had a full ride to Bradley. And at that time, Bradley was ranked in the top 25. Chet Walker was an All-American from Bradley. And I went there for a semester and realized that, hey, a small-town boy from Minnesota, I was in over my head. So I transferred to a school in, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I transferred to Augustana. And I was on a full ride there. And I was there to play basketball. But I had a couple of uh, professors that thought I was there to learn something, too. <laughs> <laughs> so... Halfway through my junior year, I was asked not to return. Okay, what do you do then? Well, I had some friends up in Minneapolis, so I went and lived with them. I got a job up there, and this was in 19, early 1965, and of course, you know what was going on back then. Well, I got my draft notice, 
In August, I went into the, to the Army, spent my basic at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, my AIT at Fort Ord, California, and from there I went on to Schofield Barracks in Hawaii, 25th Infantry Division. And when we were mustering in, there was a captain in personnel from Minnesota. And going through records, he recognized my name. So he came, called me in, and he says, Private Wienhoff, he says, would you like to get off of the line unit? I said, yes, sir. He says, well, can you type? I said, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Did he recognize your name because yeah, of basketball? That's right. That's oh right. Oh, my gosh. Well, he said, all right, he says, I've got a job opening for the clerk typist of the chief of staff of the division. Would you be interested? I said, yes, sir. So after that, I was golden. I went to Vietnam. I spent 15 months in Vietnam as a clerk typist, basically to the commanding general. What was your time like in Vietnam, just being there and kind of, I, I don't even know how to phrase it, just being there and kind of soaking in that experience and seeing what that was like? It made you grow up a lot. I didn't have, I didn't have any action. I didn't see any of the nasty stuff that was going on there. I was in a very secure area in the middle of a huge compound going to work every day in an office like normally any other person would. So when that is done and you come home from Vietnam, uh, what's your next step from there? Well, I got married. I met a girl when I was in Augustana, and uh, we stayed in touch. And this was like four years later. She lived in New York City. Now, how a small-town Minnesota boy gets hooked up with a girl from New York City? But uh, we got married, and she asked if we could go move move uh, east, move to the... To, to New York because that's where she was from and she was quite uncomfortable with the Midwest. So I agreed, but I said, yeah, we're going to look for a teaching job, but I won't teach and I won't come into the city. So we came upstate. The rest is history. Was your wife originally from this area here or how did you exactly find, you know, Shh. Section 4, I should say? Well, I was working. My brother-in-law had a fleet of oil tankers in the New York Harbor and I was working there in the summertime. And I figured, this is not what I went to college for. <laughs> so I went to a placement agency in, uh, in Manhattan, and they had a couple openings. They had one at Edward Knox, which is way up on the, in the Tug Hill Plateau, and in Edmiston. So we went to Edmiston for a job interview, and this was the day before Labor Day. They hired me that day. We moved in the next day into, into a, uh, a house that we rented. I was a football coach, athletic director. PE teacher, and JV basketball coach for three years in Edmiston. Oh, my God. And, you, and your wife taught there her entire after, career? After I, after I left Edmiston, she got a job there, and, yeah, she taught for 35 years. What were your initial, your initial feelings about the Tri-Valley League and the schools that you were playing and the people you met? I'm assuming <coughs> maybe you met somebody like Coach Grasso right away. You know, I mean, what, what were your uh, initial thoughts about? Coach Grasso and Coach Seiler were two of the mm -hmm. mainstays, you know, Pat from uh, Lawrence and George from New Berlin. It was very similar to what I came from. It was very, you know, the league we were in in Minnesota was very similar to the Tri-Valley League, so it wasn't really a big adjustment for me. When you took your Edmiston job, this would have been late 60s, early 70s? F 1970, first the fall of 70. Was that still the eight-man football era? Yep, yep. And that's what I played in Minnesota, eight-man. So I was very familiar with the with the sport. I love and I wish I could go back and watch eight-man football. Yeah. I, I hear so many cool stories about it, the Tri-Valley League teams. Uh, and for me, having never known football in the Tri-Valley, really, I mean, there were some teams when I was real young, but not eight-man. Uh, just what a special game and time that must have been. That's much faster than the 11 men. I've really enjoyed the last two years since Oxford and UV have played eight man. Yeah. We've made it a point to do a couple games each year on the radio when they play each other because there are two local eight man teams. Yep. And I, I can't believe how fast it is. It is. It's a lot faster than the 11 man. Yeah. The scoring. And for me, it's weird because there's so much open space. That's right. That's so, right. It's uh, it's fun to watch, and I, I hope that it continues when all this mess gets back to normal. Yeah, so, so do I. So I've known you as a Gilbertsville guy. So when you make the transition from Edmiston to Gilbertsville, that would have been early 70s. Well, I, I, made a, I spent a year in Cooperstown as well. Oh, After okay. I left Edmiston, I was there for three years, and then I, I went to Cooperstown for a year and uh, coached cross country and JV basketball there. But that was then the following year I came to, uh, to Gilbertsville. Now, you live just outside of Gilbertsville. Did you want to 
teach at Gilbertsville so you were close to home or just things worked out that way? Just things worked out that way, yeah. Now, when you first came to Gilbertsville, this was before the merger, which was much later, uh, what were your initial thoughts on, on Gilbertsville and what were the state of athletics at that time in Gilbertsville? Well, here again, we had eight-man football, so I was assistant football coach and uh, varsity basketball coach. And I'll never forget the first day of practice. We had kids that couldn't shoot a layup, and my work was cut out for me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we ended up with, a, I think we were 5-13 and 13 or something, and from the first practice until the end of the season, there was such a vast improvement. And by the end of the season, we were a pretty good team. So I decided to take them into sectionals. We went into sectionals, and we played the first game in sectionals we played at Oxford. We played George Junior Republic. Oh, wow, I and, forgot it, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and while the team is in the locker room dressing, I went out and uh, sitting on the bleachers, and I'm watching these guys from George Jr., and they're all 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, <laughs> they're shooting from 35 feet, you know. It's <laughs> and So I went back in the locker room. I said, okay, it's time to go warm up. But I said, none of you look down on the other end when you're warming up. <laughs> they was going to scare the daylights out of them. <laughs> well, we ended up beating George Jr. by... I don't know, five or six points. It was really a highlight of that year. Really? Oh, that's that's a great story. Do you remember some of your early guys, some of your early athletes that you had when you first came to Gilbertsville? Anybody that, that stood out to you in that era? Uh, Jeff Talbot was probably the best shooter that I've had in my whole teaching career. I'm always curious about him because I know he had well over a thousand points. Uh, I think fourteen, yeah. twenty, somewhere yeah. in there, long before the three. That's right. And uh, I don't hear much about him besides people who really know the league or really know Gilbertsville. What made his game so special? Was it just the shooting touch? Yeah. Well, he was a big kid. He was like six four, and he could shoot from anywhere. He could take it inside, or he could, like you say, he could hit the outside shot before the three pointer. Do you know if he went on and played anywhere or anything? He, uh, his, I think it was his senior year, he moved to Long Island. His, he had an aunt or an uncle that lived in Long Island, and he wanted to elevate his game, so he went to Long Island Lutheran, and he was there for the first semester, and here again, small-town boy going to a big place. He came back, and he lived with us for the last semester of, of his senior year, and he played, he, he came back and played the last semester. How many years total, uh, by the time you retired, uh, did you have in teaching and coaching? 28. So what would your advice be? And this, I, I had a couple of people send me some questions that they wanted to ask you. <laughs> what, what would your advice be to young coaches just getting into it now that have those goals of being around for 20 or 30 years and, and building a program? What's your advice to them? Have a passion for it. Enjoy it and do it. do it because you enjoy it, not because you're forced into it or not because you feel obligated to it just do it because you enjoy it i'm curious about how a guy who was six five uh worked at a school like gilbertsville where the locker rooms were i don't know about five eleven yep, down there yep walked over <laughs> hunched over many times yeah what was it like uh in the early tri-valley days i'm a an old school small gym junkie i just i miss those days i miss those those gyms and those facilities. What was it like coaching in the old, small uh, gyms, and did you have a favorite in the league? <laughs> well, if you remember, in Gilbertsville, the team sat up on the stage, and me at 6'5", up on the stage when I stood up, you know, it was, I guess, according to some of the officials, it was a little bit of a scary experience. <laughs> 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 and our and our fans sat on the other side. They were basically I don't know what, what do you call it sitting up in the balcony because there mm-hmm. was a there was like a ten foot wall off of the court. Yeah, that was you know I I was real small when that uh, when that school closed and they went to the new school. But I do remember kind of with the stage on one side and then the balcony. At least when you're little, seemed very tall. Yes, it was. Uh, so it kind of felt like you were down in, in a in a pit, like on display almost a yep. little bit. So. I'm very curious. I always like to hear about the pit at Worcester and, yeah. and some of those old gyms and, of course, the Mount Upton gym. When we had Bob Conway in here, that was great talking with him about that. So yeah. I'm always always curious and asking about the old gyms. So was there one on the road that you liked? No. No, no. no none of them on the road that I liked. <laughs> it had to be different coaching for, and maybe not for you because you grew up playing on 
courts that size, but there's just no room. How do you uh, how do you coach guys to to break a press and look for the open spot? I mean, there just is none. And that was the problem. I mean, Mount Upton had his own press that Danny O'Connell had had his own press that you just could not break, and it was yeah, it was it was tough to do. But you know, after we moved to the big court, well, when when we would go to sectionals or play on a big court. I would never allow my team to shoot from the baseline, you know, because in our gym, the baseline was only like a 10-foot shot. You get on the big courts, and the out-of-bounds line is like 25, 26 feet, you know, so we weren't allowed to shoot there. The first year of the merger, well, I shouldn't say the merger, the first year you got to the new school, did you find it was a big transition for those guys to, to play on that court all the time? Not at all. Not at all. It was just a heck of a lot more fun to play on a big court than on those little band boxes. Coach, um, you know, we had Matt Osborne in here. Yeah, I and, heard. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he said that you were upset that he was telling lies about you. <laughs> I don't remember any of those. <laughs> but what was his team like? It was a Tri-Valley Championship team. And building on that, I-, I believe it was the first year of the merger. So another question I had was, what was it like getting kids who had previously gone to different schools and maybe were rivals to come together and play on your team? I, it was a real concern. But I don't think I don't think anybody once the season got started, I don't think anyone really had any objection to it, you know. I still stayed with us with the same starting five that started the year before. But Mount Upton when Mount Upton came into our, our school, when we merged, they had three or four pretty doggone good players too. So it was a fun time. Was it difficult? Uh, were were you athletic director at that time? I was. Was it difficult when you merge two schools and you have coaches on both sides? To know who who to keep and like how, how do you make those decisions that not saying anything was wrong it's just had to be hard at the time to say hey uh, we're gonna keep one and not the other no I don't think so I th- it was very easily transitioned I was a varsity coach and that was fine uh, Rich Latham was the varsity coach there and he became the JV coach and everything just kind of was very smooth. I think that worked great. Rich later became varsity coach after you retired again, and that's who I had for varsity basketball. Yep, and yep. would love to get him in here sometime and pick his brain a little bit too. <laughs> I'm sure he's got some fun memories of, of you guys working together. But uh, another thing that one of our listeners asked is, you have three daughters. I do. So they were curious, you know, for someone who coached boys and, you know, was kind of this tough Tough guy, as you said, standing up on the stage, looking down at the officials. What was it like to have to have three girls at home, and you're the only guy in the house? <laughs> well, we yeah, we had three girls. My wife, we my daughter was into horses, so we had mares. We had uh, female dogs. We had female cats. Everything. I was the only male around. <laughs> <laughs> now, all your daughters were were great athletes. Um, you know, I know Christy the best because she was closest to me in age. Correct. Uh, but, you know, your older two daughters, uh, Megan and Mika, I always hear great things about them on, on the basketball court. And I know that there was some great teams in Gilbertsville and Mount Upton and then GMU in the late 80s and early 90s. Is, are those the teams they would have been on? Yes. Yeah. Mika graduated in 90, so that was the last year of the merger. And then Megan graduated in 94, which she played all four years with the merger. What was it like with them growing up and did you start teaching them the game and sports at an early age or or how did that work I didn't interfere with it really? I knew I, I no I couldn't I I knew that I was thankful that I wasn't coaching girls <laughs> Yeah did you ever at any point consider coaching girls No no out of the question What else at Gilbertsville did you coach maybe nothing else you said you did the the football and you did basketball is there anything else you did over the no, years No that's it that's that was it. that was enough And any of your daughters, I don't know, uh, did they go on playing college, anything like that? Mika did. Mika went on to, uh, she played on scholarship at Lock Haven down in Pennsylvania. But no, Megan tried out, and the first practice she tried out, they worked their tails off, and she got so sore, stiff and sore, that she decided it wasn't worth it. Now, mm. where did she go to school? She went to school at Ithaca. Mm. A good program for yeah. sure. Yep. So that has to be some fond memories of going and watching them play in championship games and sectionals. Did you have time to do that? Well, that's it. That is maybe one of the things that I regret the most about me coaching and my girls playing is, well, we played on the same nights. So there was a lot of times where 
my team was playing and also my girls were playing and I didn't get a chance to always see all the games. You know, that was one of the things that eventually in the Tri-Valley League, we changed it so that girls would play on alternate nights, which was great. If you could go back, would you change anything that you did then? Would you stop coaching maybe for those years? Not at all. No, I loved it too much. Coach, I've always been curious about uh, the towel. Everyone says, why? Coach always had that towel that he had over his shoulder or, you know, hanging off of his hip. Uh, What is the towel story? I have no idea, but it was (laughs) something that I had for every game. Every game from the time I started coaching until the time I retired, I always had a towel with me. So it was a... It was a security rag, you know, like peanuts, you know. (laughs) Linus has to have a security blanket. It was a piece of the wardrobe. That's right. I wanted to go back to to Coach Osborne. Now you're going to have a chance. Is is there a story you remember about him or anything that sticks out from his time since he had one about you? No, not really. I mean, he he started as a freshman for me, so he played all four years, and he was a a good player. So the current... UV girls basketball coach, Brandy Whitbeck, Brandy Backus. That's right. uh, Is a GMU grad. She played with Christy, yeah. Yes, great athlete. She said to me one time, we're watching a UV game, and I brought this up to Matt in his interview. She said, who does he remind you of? (laughs) And if you know Matt, he's a very quiet, polite guy off the court, but he, when the game starts, he's fierce, and he's loud, and he's running up and down the sideline, and I said, I don't know. What are you getting at? And she said, he, he's like Coach Veenhoff. When the when the lights come on, that's what he's like. Have you ever watched him coached it and noticed similarities between you guys? Yeah, I have, and I've reminded him of that occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, no, Nate, no, not at all. Yeah. I said, that. yeah, I think it's true. <laughs> was your fire and passion on the bench just because of how competitive you are and how you were raised and just the way that you think the game should be played? Is that why yeah. that came out of you at game time? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I was very compassionate, very vocal on the bench. Yeah, but you know, when the final horn sounded, to me the game was over. And on another, I have to tell you a story that this was in the old Gilbertsville gym. I got three technicals <laughs> and was asked to leave the gym. <laughs> and this was Bert Beams that made that made the final call. And in the old Gilbertsville school. The boiler room downstairs was where the officials changed. And it was also the smoking room for the boys, for the men of faculty. And, of course, back then I was a smoker. So I was down there having my cigarette when the game ended. And Bert comes down and he says, oh, he says, I think you have to leave, Dean. I said, Bert, I said, the game's over. I said, I deserved what I got. Let's <laughs> put it all behind us. And after that, we've been good friends. Oh, that's, that's a great story. Do, hmm. do you have... For, the, for our fans out there, do you have any other moments that stick out like that in a game where you say, oh, maybe I went a little too far that night? No, but there's another story that I have to tell you. Floyd Musson was one of our better players. And uh, in the old Gilbertsville gym, his dad was sitting up in the balcony and was a little bit vocal towards the officials. And the official, and I won't name his name, but he'll know who it is, <laughs> comes running over to me and he says, Dean, he says, that guy over there, it's got to go. And I said, I looked at him and I said, have you seen the size of that guy? I'm not going to tell him to go anyplace. <laughs> <laughs> well, this game's not going to continue until he's out of here. <laughs> well, thank goodness the superintendent was there and I escorted the, the gentleman out of the gym. So I had an opportunity, to, we had an opportunity to continue with the game. Oh, that's, I, I love hearing those <laughs> old stories. When did you, and this is a topic that we've hit on recently with a bunch of coaches we've had on. When did you know it was time to retire and, and hang it up? It, it's a tough decision, and we've heard a lot of different answers. I think that it was a time where I felt that I took it more seriously than the kids did. The kids were there because they were there. They didn't, you know, there was no drive to improve, to be the best that they could be. And that was a point where I guess I have to bow out and let somebody else do it that's interesting we haven't heard that that type of an answer yet we've heard well i wanted to retire from teaching but i wanted to keep coaching or i didn't want to keep coaching if i wasn't at school Uh, it has to be tough after all those years you put in it is it was yeah but i was ready i was ready to retire too so 
the last year that I coached, it was also the last year that I retired. So, so into retirement now, I know you've done a lot of different things. One thing that I know that you've done is uh, you picked up bus driving. Yep. And not just school bus driving, but you drive the charter buses, and you have taken a lot of teams, college teams, the, the Oneonta baseball teams around. And uh, I always hear a lot of athletes that love just, you know, if you got some time to kill and they're waiting somewhere, they love talking to you in, in your bus driver role. Yeah. Well, the reason I got into bus driving is after I retired, my wife was still teaching. And the summer was great, but once she went back to school, I'm sitting at home and she expects the vacuuming to be done, laundry done, dinner on the table. I thought, oh boy, boy, I got to get the heck out of here. I got to find something to do. So I went over and started driving motor coach. Yeah. So you've done Oneonta State and Hartwick and again, all the Outlaws teams. Is there any teams in particular that you really connected with and and really like driving for? I, I enjoyed the men's basketball team at Oneonta State. Vince and I, Vince Medici and I got along great together. We've become good friends, and he had some pretty good teams. It was it was fun. Did any of those coaches ever ask your advice? No. No? <laughs> <laughs> Not to say that I didn't offer it occasionally. I was going to say, was, at that point, is it like, how do you stay quiet yeah. sometimes? <laughs> now, I know besides bus driving, and I think this was during your coaching career as well, you were involved with a lot of different committees. I was. Section level, state level. I don't know exactly all of them. I was hoping you could tell us about that. Well, I was I was the Tri-Valley representative to Section 4 ever since I came into the Tri-Valley. And uh, I guess it was 1992, maybe? Two, four, six, eight. Yeah, 1992, I became second vice president in Section 4, moved up to first vice president and then to president. And uh, at that time, it was two-year terms. So I served my two-year term, but the person that was supposed to follow me decided that they weren't going to move up. So I served an unprecedented second term. (laughs) So I was president of Section 4 for four years. And at that time, one of the state workers uh, thought that I could be an officer at the state level. So my name came up for nomination, and I was was elected to move up the line in the state association. So I became second vice, first vice, and then a two-year term of president. But the two-year term that I was president, the first vice president— who was supposed to be taking my place, we hired her as the executive director. So that meant that either the second vice had to move all the way up to president or I serve another year. So I served an unprecedented third year as president of the Public High School Athletic Association. What was it about those positions? I mean, some people don't want to be involved in that side of it, but you've always seemed to enjoy that. What was it about those jobs that you really liked? I think probably... I've been accused of too much common sense, <laughs> you know, and and I've never I've never shied away from speaking my mind, and that has gotten me in trouble occasionally, <laughs> but that's okay. I don't I sleep well at night because of it. Now, I notice in my job now, you know, if I go to states or you know a big game, sectional game, you're still there. You I still am. really enjoy going and watching. Uh, is it just? Being around the game still and, and watching players, uh, what is it about games that you still love going to? I just, I just love, the, I love the sport. I just enjoy the game. Are you constantly when you're sitting there? Uh, is it hard to turn the coach brain off? Or are you picking things apart the whole time? It was initially. You know, the first four or five years I would go. Then I was looking at defenses and offenses and trying to figure out what I would have done if they were throwing this at me. But I've noticed in the last several years. I've just become a fan. I just enjoy going, sitting, and watching them play. I don't worry about, you know, I recognize what defense they're playing, and I try to recognize a little bit of what offense is going on, but I don't really dwell on it. I just enjoy watching watching the game. How much did you enjoy having the state tournament in Binghamton? I mean, you were right down there on the floor in a nice seat, uh, courtside, watching some great games. I loved it. I thought it was great, and I wish it would have been, wish it would have stayed there. I thought it was a great experience. Um, I'm not upset that it's in Glens Falls. I mean, that's that's a great place to go watch it, too. I really did enjoy having it in our backyard. That's right. And I enjoyed that Section 4, I thought, did a great job with it. I did, too. Ben Nelson did a great job. Yeah, kudos to Ben. I, I thought that was great. And, uh, you know, that game, I didn't get to stay and watch it, but did you like watching Joe Girard in that sold-out game uh, in the state finals? He can shoot, can he? 
<laughs> Along with the Cooperstown team, Joe Girard was probably the most fun to watch, yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a fun weekend, and I got to be there for Cooperstown. I think I had to go back to Albany maybe for one of the girls' games. I think that's why I couldn't stay and watch Joe Girard, so... That was unfortunate because, yeah, well, it's, yeah. of course, it went right down to the wire. So, <laughs> Well, Coach, is there anything else I'm missing? I, oh, I did have one more question. Maybe who was your favorite uh, rival coach when you were coaching? Did you have someone you always enjoyed going up against and the rivalry was fierce or just someone who was a good friend? I enjoyed going up against Tom Dixon because he was at New Berlin, always had a good team, and whenever we had an opportunity or a chance – or whenever we ended up beating them, was always very rewarding. Another guest I would like to get on here uh, sometime in the near future to, to pick his brain on some New Berlin memories. So, Well, Coach, is there anything else? Did I miss anything here on the interview today? No, I appreciate it. And uh, uh, my family told me to, to uh, be careful what I say because remember my family, you know, so <laughs> I, I hope I haven't embarrassed them too much. <laughs> no, I think this has been fantastic. I think so many people uh, are going to love your Edgerton story. I, I just find that to be fascinating. I can't, I haven't read the book yet. I can't wait to read the book and uh, learn more about that. I, I love that stuff. And uh, again, I, I want to go back and watch the documentary again. W- was that neat getting interviewed for that? Because you were in it. Yeah, I was. At least one of the ones that I watched. Yeah. Uh, they had almost all you guys there and, and interviewed you, so I thought that was great. Yeah, it was. It was a lot of fun. Well, it has been fun. I mean, Minnesota basketball, you know, it's not the same since they went to, I think there are four classes, five classes now. Back then, it was only one class. Do you prefer that style of the one class, or do you, do you like it now that they broke it up? I like it now that they broke it up, because the game has evolved so far, so far that there is no way that a small school can compete with the big schools anymore. I mean, it's become a specialized thing. Back then, everybody played three sports. Now, you play basketball year-round. Around, you know, if you're from a big school, you don't play soccer or football. You don't play baseball or, or what. You, you play basketball. You, know, you go AAU, you go year-round. I did have one more Edgerton question. One of the things I was reading said that your team shot free throws relentlessly. Any break in practice, any morning or night where you had free time, you guys were shooting free throws. Is that uh, something you guys really focused on? Always. And, you know, I think as a team, we shot like, for the season, we shot like 80% from the foul line, which is unheard of. And I know, I, I think it was your Richfield game. It was tight late, and you guys hit some key free throws. Uh, to seal that game, we didn't have a, we didn't have a field goal in overtime. We played a three minute overtime. We got a one point lead and we held the ball. And they had to foul us, and we didn't miss free throws. We just we just didn't miss. Wow! I can't wait to go back read some more on that game and and all the other games. So, coach, this was great having you in here today. I, I really appreciate it, and uh, can't wait to let the world listen to this one. I appreciate it. Keep up the good work, Nate. Appreciate it. So this is episode 79 with longtime Gilbertsville and GMU coach Dean Veenhoff. Again, so excited to release this one. I think everyone will love this Edgerton story and, uh, of course, a trip down memory lane at Gilbertsville and GMU and the Tri-Valley. That's always a lot of fun. So stay tuned for more. We'll have a lot more interviews coming up here on the Nate Law Podcast. You've been listening to the Nate Lull Podcast. Download each new episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.